Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. She she is adapting yeah. the scriptures to for drama um and is doing that in a way that her goal is to really make the gospels come to life for people um the head of religious broadcasting for the bbc james welch it was really his vision that this should be an evangelistic event mm-hmm. um he felt like nobody even knows the the bible anymore you know yeah. people aren't yeah. going to church i mean particularly after world war one there was real fall off of people's involvement in church in the uk um, and so he really felt like this is something that can help bring the gospel to this country. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic reform tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're doing a book club episode, and our guest today is Catherine Ware, and she edited a book called The Man. Born to be King by Dorothy L. Sayers. It's the Wade Annotated Edition, 2023 edition. Um, so we're going to be actually talking to you guys a lot about introducing you guys to Dorothy L. Sayers and talking about this book that Catherine edited, The Man Born to be King. And it is published by our good friends at IVP Academics. So if you go to our show notes, there's that link to IVP Academic. It's going to take you straight to this book that Catherine edited. Um, and then a little bit more information on our show notes, to, uh, uh, resources about uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, and uh, more information about how to uh, use resources from our show to uh, guide you guys to a reformed or confessional church near your area and how to find us, Nick, myself, or Peter, or both of us to communicate with us, ask us questions, and then learn a little bit more about our bridge builder sponsors, especially Logos Bible Software and uh, some other ones. So um, we'll jump into this episode here and we'll introduce both Dorothy L. Sayers, who is a playwright, scholar, author, lay theologian, and Christian, but uh, on behalf of uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, we're going to have Catherine Ware talk to us today, and I'll let Peter further introduce Catherine Ware today. Yeah, we have Dr. Catherine Ware, whose PhD is from University of St. Andrews, is a creative artist and scholar. Written work has appeared in several journals and publications, including Logos or Logos, depending how you want to say that, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, um, uh, seven, a journal of the Marion uh, E. Wade Center, the journal of Inkling Studies and Transpositions, Theology, Imagination and the Arts. She's also managing editor of Logos, Journal of Catholic Thought and Culture. And before we substantively introduce uh, some more stuff, wanted to kind of shout out the, the fact that Nick and I have both um, very much emphasized the L of Dorothy L. Sayers. And maybe Dr. Ware, if you want to start, why should we emphasize the Dorothy L. Sayers instead of just Dorothy Sayers? 
Sure, we made a little joke of that uh, mm -hmm. just a second ago because uh, Sayers herself was very um, insistent on that L. Uh, apparently, there was another Dorothy Sayers uh, who was, I think, a violinist with the BBC Orchestra. Huh. And so they used to get each other's fan mail. And so she really wanted that L. So I was like, I'm not sure a violinist, I'm a that. playwright. And a that's right. But she actually did play the violin. But oh, that's uh, oh. well, there you go. <laughs> she's she's wow. like, I do a lot more stuff than you. I want my fan mail. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a pleasure having you on the show, Dr. Ware. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe let our audience know a little bit about yourself. If they're they're like, who's who's this Dr. Ware person and your background and your work? Sure. Thanks. Um, so I I live in Minnesota. Here I work at the University of St. Thomas, which is where the journal Logos, as we pronounce it, um, a Journal of Catholic Thought and Culture, is published out of the Center for Catholic Studies. And um, I really enjoy that work because it's an interdisciplinary journal. So there's a lot of faith and faith mm. and literature and ethics and business and science, whatever it is. Yeah, it's kind of like of our like Kuyperian reformed approach in, in some in some respects. I don't know if you know who Abraham Kuyper is. Sorry, I don't. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, but I love that kind of you know interdisciplinary work. So it's a it's cool. a joy to be there. Um, and as you said, I studied in Scotland. I um, I actually was raised Baptist, was Anglican for about twenty years, and then became Catholic. So, I my my first degree is from Bethel University here in Minnesota, which is Baptist, and then I went to Regent oh. College in Vancouver, okay. and then I got a second master's um, at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, England, and then up to Scotland. Um, so anyway, it's uh, I have ecumenical tastes. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> And here, uh, yeah, we have to talk about Sayers. Yeah, we have we have ecumenical we have ecumenical taste. So we've had a bunch of Catholics and Anglicans and Baptists and Lutherans and Reformed, all those all those people on the show. So yeah, thanks for thanks for introducing us to um, Dr. Sayers. Or I don't think she's a doctor. I think she's um, Miss Sayers. Miss Sayers usually is how she was referred mm. to, um, but she did receive an honorary doctorate from the University of. Durham. That's right. That's that's why I, like that's why my mind was thinking she's kind of a doctor, but not a doctor. So that's. My mind was kind of mixing different things. Yeah. Yeah. But she, I mean, she was actually very interested in ecumenical things too. That's um, right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, particularly at the time she was writing The Man Born to Be King, uh, she was also involved in uh, the project for an idea called the Ecumenical Penguin, where they were trying to figure out, huh. we're trying to, to write a penguin edition, a paperback, easy, no, easy access paperback mm -hmm. that would have just basic theology that all Christians could affirm. So looking at the, you know, from the, the councils and the creeds, what are the things that we actually have in common um, so that everyday people could, you know, look around and be like, well, there are so many different kinds of Christians, but actually there's a lot that we agree yep. on. And yep. that's mm -hmm. what she was really passionate about. Awesome. Yeah, cool. definitely. So we've learned a little bit about you and uh, obviously Dorothy L. Sayers is a very important person to you and yeah. you're representing her very well. Um, it's pretty, probably pretty obvious to the audience. If you're not familiar with Dorothy L. Sayers, she's not on this uh, recording because she's <laughs> not alive anymore. And so uh, you're doing a great job representing uh, who she was and, and her work. So if you could help the audience, maybe we, let's lay some groundwork. Let's just sure. assume somebody doesn't know really anything about Dorothy, and you could kind of just start from the beginning and, and, you know, take as long or short as you want, but just explain who she is to the audience and more particularly how that connected to you, what made kind of uh, you interested in, you know, her works and start, you know, writing about her and that kind of thing, studying her. Yeah. Okay. So um, her dates are 1893. She died in 1857. Um <laughs> And so she's roughly contemporary with C.S. Lewis. So she was born yep. just a couple of years before him and died a few years before him. Um, but they did know each other in the early 40s. They began to be uh, friends. I've met a few times, but but there's actually a lot of really fun letters between oh, them. Oh, yeah. Yep. Which is a real treasure trove. Um, but she was uh, a rarity for her age. She went to university. She studied at Oxford as a student at uh, Somerville College. And uh, she studied modern languages, which included like medieval to modern. <laughs> so she specialized in medieval French, um, which she did use. So she actually, throughout her life, she published uh, two translations from medieval French poetry. 
Um, but, and she herself was a poet. That was sort of her first published writings were poetry. And, but of course, poetry doesn't pay, right? It's hard to support yourself writing poetry. So she uh, took a job with an advertising agency, but she began to write uh, mystery novels and um, is, is best known by a lot of people for her detective, Lord Peter Whimsey. And there's a whole series of books um, of, of his detection. Um, so of course he's, he's an aristocrat and that's how he goes about his business, asking, asking questions and putting it all together. Hmm. Um, but uh, particularly toward the end of that, uh, those series. So she's writing that through the twenties and into the thirties. And um, by you know the early 30s, she was kind of getting tired of Lord Peter Whimsey, and she decided to um, kind of kill him off. And the only way to kill <laughs> off a person in fiction is either to marry them off or to actually kill them. So huh. she decided that he needed a love interest. Oh. So she introduced Harriet Vane, so who appears in the last few books. But what I think is very interesting is that she started to write one book, and it was going to be the final one. A strong poison but then she realized that to make them fall in love with each other because they were just such you know interest it was such a intense situation harriet was on trial for murder and he was kind of saving her life um to sort of force them to fall in love at the end of that book would have been to do violence to them as her own creations and mm. so she gave them more time and she wrote five more books oh in gosh. order to finally <laughs> bring them together um so 1936 her book strong poison um sorry Sorry, Gaudy Knight, excuse me. Strong Poison is one I just mentioned where they met. Gaudy Knight um, is the sort of finally coming together um, book, which was it originally intended to be her last one, but then she wrote a play about their honeymoon with a friend, which eventually became the novel Busman's Honeymoon. So that's sort of the exact end of hmm. her mystery writing career. Um, but through writing that play, she got into um, writing stage plays and Charles Williams, who is a, another one of the Inklings, mm -hmm. Um, they had been introduced and he recommended her to write a stage play for the Canterbury Festival, um, the Canterbury Cathedral in England. Mm -hmm. And so she wrote her first kind of religious play. And then that kind of took her in a, in a, in a new direction. Um, so partly as because of that, someone um, actually a, a drama reviewer from the uh, magazine Punch uh, said that she was taking theological liberties mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. which something that she actually uh, said, you don't even know what you're talking about. So she <laughs> wrote this whole thing um, saying, you know, defending herself that she's actually sticking very closely to the creeds oh, yeah. um, and that uh, actually that is what gives, that's what makes the drama in the drama um, is that she's actually saying, if we actually understood what we mean by the words in the creed, we would be blown away. Yep. And so that's what actually makes this play exciting. Um, so she wrote a few more stage plays. Then uh, she had already started doing some things for the BBC, for the radio. She was asked to write a nativity play um, in 1939. And then, then she was asked to write this series, whole series of plays called The Man mm -hmm. Born to be King, The Whole Life of Christ, mm -hmm. which kind of picks up Sort of an epiphany play through the ascension so um the whole life of christ if you kind of add that nativity play on there sort of 13 plays in total it's a whole life yeah. of christ mm. um but that was mammoth task um that took a you know uh, a couple of years of her life really as the main thing she was doing um and i think it it really uh, strengthened and deepened her faith in a lot of ways. I think mm -hmm. we, we really see her her other writings. She wrote mm -hmm. a lot of essays at that time, too. Um, there's just a real depth and kind of a new, um, just, uh, I mean, she's just more sure of herself, I think, mm -hmm. because she's more sure of her, of her faith and her theology and what she's basing what she's writing on. Yeah, she's brilliant. Awesome. Yeah, if you guys yeah. research her. And her writing is like is ridiculous it's like she's she's for me on the level of of lewis and sometimes better than lewis and and her prose and her her diction uh i like i, I appreciate good writers and she is she has an ability to write with the best of them mm -hmm. good and so well, this, can i just oh, add one last yeah, thing yeah, that, that i feel like people should know about her mm -hmm. i sorry i have i have gone on here but 
the in the middle of the war 1943 she mm-hmm. rediscovered dante oh. and so we can't sort of end talking about sayers without talking about dante which she really spent the last about 15 yeah. years of her life on dante That's right um, i remember this an yeah. original colloquial translation which even though it's not read that often today her essays about it are That's and right. um, yeah. are really foundational for dante studies in yep. the english-speaking world um and we probably wouldn't care that much about dante in the English-speaking world, if it wasn't for Sayers, huh? Yeah. So the the three she's talking about the the three-part play or the three-part, I guess, cantos or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, of of Dante's Inferno, Paradiso. Mm. I just I just read this this summer, this past summer. I'm blanking another one. There's there's three of them. Purgatory. You're missing. Pur- yeah, Purgatorio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just like it <laughs> passed me. Know. For a Protestant yeah. to forget yeah, about, I, like, oh, yeah. I don't know about purgatory. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's why my brain, yeah, blocked that out of my of my mind. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, uh, purgatorio, um, yeah, inferno and pretty. Yeah, this is it's such good stuff. Um, but if I completely forgotten that Dorothy Sayers did some stuff on that, that's it's good to know. So, yeah. so some people like they only know her through her detective fiction, or they that's only right. know her because of Dante. Yeah. Or I meet a lot of people who are homeschoolers and only know her that's because right. yeah. of yeah. the Lost Tools of Learning, which is an essay about that's education right. that yep. she wrote. So people are often kind of um they only know one. It's like she's like a hallway, it's all these different yep. doors to go into, mm-hmm. and some people just know one room, but there's a lot to explore. Yeah, no, that's 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 true. I've fun fact, I've re- I've read um her writing on education and writing essays probably 30 times um it is it is the best stuff i've ever read on on these hmm. things hmm. Um, I, I love that which is why i, I like dorothy's here so much amongst other things mm-hmm. so what happened in your life that made you really well, you know, how did the, your interest begin with with her works yeah. Um, I When I was a student at Regent College in Vancouver, mm-hmm. we just had to do a book report and I picked it off a list. I picked The Man oh. Born to be King, um, which I ended up spending so much of my time on um, just because it was drama and my first degree was in theater. Mm. And so I wrote a book review on it, uh, but I always liked it. And I went from there. You know, it was then I you know read some of her mystery novels and it was kind of, you know, I, it got me into reading all kinds of other things by her. And then um, when I was thinking about doing a PhD, I, I was looking, you know, this, this program in Scotland is really amazing. So it's, it's very artsy. So I, I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to do something artsy. And I was thinking, well, what, what have I been using? And when I, I taught undergraduate theology for a few years, um, and I looked at some of the things that I had been using in my own classroom. And that's something I had always reserved one, one class period to do, to read one of these plays aloud and explore them with the students to look, you know, I was teaching theology. So, so I wanted to say like, how is she actually expressing theology through drama um, Mm -hmm. was the thing that we would discuss together. And so I just looked, I thought, I wonder if there's much scholarship on these and there just hadn't been much. So, you know, PhD, you have to find something no one else has, has uh, uh, researched before. And so that's what I made a proposal to do for my PhD. And it's been a wonderful journey. I, I've really, really enjoyed it. I, I felt like the years I was, you know, researching my PhD, I was spending, like Sayers, all this time in the four gospels. Mm. You know, all of my uh, you know, grad school training from from region, for instance, you know, where you're doing uh textual criticism, all those skills were came back to me and it was wonderful to um to really look at how Sayers was using the gospels. She describes um laying out the gospels in columns which is something Mm -hmm. you know we Mm -hmm. didn't really have i mean there's a book now called the synopsis of the four gospels um that is an absolute standard um but she didn't have that she did it herself um Mm -hmm. and so what i did is kind of i took you know the published version of the synopsis of the four gospels but i added a fifth column for her plays Mm -hmm. so that i could look how did she use each pericope are there pericopes Mm -hmm. she didn't use um isn't that interesting? You know, so just certain things, for instance, like she didn't use, these were originally intended to be children's plays, although they had a really <laughs> wide audience, yeah. but originally, you know, so she, she didn't include um, the woman caught in adultery, for instance, yep. which, you know, it's kind of a no brainer yeah. for children's um, plays, but she also didn't, for instance, include Zacchaeus, which I thought huh. is kind of interesting. So, but being able to look at what she did and didn't use um, and then 
also you know, a lot of her biographers um would just say things like oh she you know she prefers john she really relies on john so as a scholar i had to ask the question like how do we know that how can we even study that so that's why i did that um study with the five columns um to be able to actually analyze how she uses scripture um and i would say that she she does love john but john is so different from the others he has these long long stories whereas there's so many shorter um sayings and shorter miracle stories and that kind of thing in the the um matthew mark and luke in the synoptics mm -hmm. so she uses them a little differently but there's actually i mean she the synoptic material way outweighs john for sure mm. but you know that makes sense based on how much more material there is that's true but um anyway but it was just really exciting to to kind of analyze these plays within an inch of their lives um and she also credits some some other commentaries and yeah. some other gospel adaptations at the time like two or three big commentaries that she used for this yeah and um and so i read all those and i made a big chart you know of okay <laughs> yeah. for all these scenes and these plays okay there's this is very similar or she seems to have this characterization that's similar or this person has a interesting take on mary magdalene which she seems to mm. take on or be influenced by so um what's exciting so my phd is just like all these charts but now with this new annotated edition um, I'm able to put all that information in useful proximity to the text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, let's see. So here's, you know, so the plays yeah, on YouTube, are down you can see what she's doing right columns, now. Yeah. But all the uh, the side notes yep. and the things at the bottom, those are what I spent so much time. Yeah, so all which the, is so clever when I was reading through it. I thought it was so, okay. so well done. Yeah. Good. So all the, all the, um, you know, Bible references are at the bottom. And I mean, she obviously uses the, the, the four gospels but she she quotes a lot of the psalms actually mm -hmm. um and a lot of other references yep. um so i just make it into there yeah yeah i mean when i read it the first time with a group just as kind of a book group uh before i did my phd you know i kept saying like well, which gospel is that in mm -hmm. um, but now it's right there and a, a a reader doesn't have to look it up for themselves it's it's right at hand mm -hmm. in an easy spot yeah that's mm -hmm. awesome um, I'm going to preface my next question. And I think people, either they've caught on to it or we can make it really obvious. This, this is a, you, this is a play. So it's not just kind of a, a book right. like a theological book. It's, it's a, it's 12 plays, depending on how you, I guess, like you said, want to count it, but, um, yeah, it's, there's, it's a, it's a book of plays. Maybe you want to talk about like, what, like, what, what are you doing in this book? Like, what's like your annotations part of it, your editing part of it, uh, maybe yeah, like kind of how the book is broken down. Cause I think when people first look at it, they're like, they're expecting a book, um, book proper. Right. But when they read through it, it's like, oh, this is actually a play. That's like the the mm -hmm. the, uh, the actual transposition of the play on the on the text. That's right. So, um, and that makes it a totally different kind of thing than just a novel uh, because it's all written as dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and and so she, she wrote these plays. It was actually commissioned by the British Broadcasting Corporation as a series of plays on the life of Christ. And originally intended, as I kind of hinted before, originally intended for the children's hour. Mm -hmm. um, but because of the press that happened, there was kind of a, mm -hmm. uh, a surprise kind mm -hmm. of a thing that happened just before they were aired that they ended up getting a much bigger audience than was originally intended. And so um, it was still broadcast during that the children's hour. a huge hour. audience back then for, for this play. Right. Yeah. I mean, a million people yeah. at the time, which is, that's like, that's big. Yeah. You know. <laughs> be a pittance today, I guess, in some sense, but that's huge back then for sure. Yeah. And to all be listening at the same time live. I mean, that's what that uh, yeah. is, is different too. Um, and, you know, the, the radio was such an important part of life during, mm -hmm. during the war. I mean, everyone was getting all their war information from the, from yeah, the radio. This is the 40s that this play came out on radio, right? Correct, 1941 to 1942. So right in the middle of World War II. Um, so people were getting their war bulletins. Mm. They're getting their, you know, there are a lot of religious services on the play, on, on the radio, but then, you know, all kinds of other things, all kinds of entertainment. Um, but these plays were broadcast um, on 12 Sunday afternoons. And um, they were very, very well 
loved. As I said, there was a little bit of controversy, controversy mm-hmm. beforehand, mm-hmm. because <laughs> she was um, going to put this in colloquially English instead of instead of just, for instance, just strictly taking the King James. Mm-hmm. But but if you think that's, I mean, to turn anything into drama, if you if you actually think about how the Gospels are, you know, mm-hmm. like they're not written as dialogue. They're no, they're yeah. written um, as sayings or stories in the third person. Yep. Um, you know, some, obviously we have words of Christ, but, it, but, um, you know, even, even Their testimony how, how witnessed yeah, for, for what he had said. Right. And so she, she is adapting yeah. the scriptures to drop for drama, um, mm-hmm. and is doing that in a way that her goal is to really make the gospels come to life for people. Um, the head of religious broadcasting for the BBC, James Welch, it was really his vision that this should be an evangelistic event. Mm-hmm. Um, he felt like nobody even knows the, the Bible anymore. You know, yeah. people aren't yeah. going to church. I mean, particularly after World War One, there was a real fall off of people's involvement in church in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. And so he really felt like this is something that can help bring the gospel to this country. Um I think about that when I go through the BBC archives, because they're, you know, they're not into that kind of thing too much anymore. And so I think, what do they think when they read someone on their own staff being like, the people of this country need Jesus Christ. (laughs) Um, And so anyway, they, uh, they keep letting me quote from all his letters. So that's fine. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So he just had this vision for it. Um, And Sayers, uh, I mean, she certainly, you know, was, was happy to do this she felt like her main goal is to write the best play that she can mm-hmm. um you know um and and to let as she she actually said this to c.s lewis said like i need to do my best and let god do what he likes with the stuff hmm. um is what she is what she said to him once about a different project but that's the kind of idea that like her goal she has to focus write the best play she can the best drama do her due diligence in her in her study in the scriptures, um, and and then let the let the story speak for itself. Yeah. Hey all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt Grace Gratitude podcast, with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible Study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guiltgrace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. Westminster Seminary, California's upcoming Seminary for a Day is Friday, March 10th, 2023. Westminster's rigorous master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity all emphasize a mastery of the original biblical languages, being Hebrew and Greek, a small student-to-professor ratio of about 12 to 1, face-to-face education, and you're really going to get to know your classmates and professors, and you'll sit under seasoned pastor-scholars who know what ministry life is like. I really can't overemphasize how much of a blessing my Westminster education was. The ability to comfortably read and work in the original languages for sermon prep, draw from the depths of confessionally reformed theology, all with a laser focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation, have profoundly shaped my approach to ministry. I really do hope you'll consider coming to Westminster's upcoming Seminary for a Day on Friday, March 10th, 2023. You'll have the opportunity to sit in a few classes 
grab lunch with some of the professors, participate in the Q&A with those professors, walk the campus grounds, check out the gorgeous and cheap apartments, in short, get a snapshot of seminary life. Westminster offers a $400 travel grant to ease the expense of visiting, so go to www.wscal.edu for more information, or go to our show notes, find the link, press it, and sign up for yourself. Again, Westminster Seminary, California's next seminary for a day is Friday, March 10th, 2023. I hope you come experience seminary life for yourself like I did in March of 2019, and one day, join me in the ranks of our alumni. I had an extra question too, based on my kind of like explain, introducing who she is to the audiences. You know, she was, from what I learned, she was born into a Christian family. Her father was a leader or a, a kind of a Church uh, of England clergyman. Yep. Yeah. And she was, so she's in that Christian family, but she didn't really start doing a lot of this until after her twenties. Is that right? Right. So she, um, and then, so, um, did she, is she kind of a self-taught theologian? Did she have any theological heroes that she was learning from? Cause you know, cause she definitely knew her stuff and oh, she's yeah, she brilliant. Yeah. So, and, and not to take anything away from, you know, who she was influenced with as well, but, you know, not to explain that she was just like out of nowhere, knew this stuff. What was going on in the background? How did she, you know, learn all this? Yeah. A great, great question. Um, definitely being, a you know, growing up in a, a pastor's home, that mm-hmm. that's a, a certain kind of grounding. Um, she, even her letters from the time of university, you know, she, uh, she's writing to her parents about GK Chesterton a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a big influence. And in fact, after, after he died, she wrote a letter to his widow that we still have where she says, um, no other writer influenced me more than G.K. Chesterton. Um, she got to know him, actually. They were both a part of um, uh, what was called the Detection Club in in England, mm. London. Um, um, Agatha Christie was a part of this, too, and other, other mystery writers. But so they knew each other through that. And sometimes they all did, like, um, they wrote stories for the newspapers where, like, one person would write one chapter and then a different person would write the next. And kind of a fun way to write together. But... Um, Anyway, but she loved his book. She, I mean, she, in her letters, she quotes him all the time um, to her parents and recommends his books. And she heard him speak a number of times um, and that kind of thing. So that was certainly important to her. Um, I think she, her father was what we call a a broad church Anglican. So Mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, he was also working more in a rural rural area. So it's a a church that, um, a parish that's um, kind of middle of the road, open to all kinds of people. Um, and so when she went to university at Oxford, she uh, started calling herself an Anglo-Catholic, mm-hmm. which is, means high church Anglican. So, yep. um, more of an emphasis on the creeds. I mm-hmm. mean, that's part of, that's a big part of her theology. Um, um, but also the sacraments, uh, we know that she went to confession to a priest, that kind of a thing that she started doing then, which her father wouldn't have been his, his thing. Totally. Um, so a little bit of a, a rebellion going, going <laughs> high church, I guess. Yeah. If you um, can call that a rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when she was in, in London in the twenties and beginning to write, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to know exactly what her involvement was at the, right in, just after she published her first novel is when she had, um, a short affair with a man in her building and actually had a son out of wedlock, huh. um, who was raised by her cousin. Um, and so, but I mean, it's, but I think a few years later, she got married. She married a man who wasn't very active religiously. So I, I would, I would say that really by the maybe mid thirties is when 1930s is when we see, um, when she's coming into her forties, more of a seriousness about faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also being asked to, to write, um, some religious material, like write this play for yeah. the Canterbury Festival. Um, it it really, I think, transformed her writing and her thinking. And, you know, um, 
that she's really a very deeply religious person by the time um, she's finished writing these plays for sure. Um, and then getting into Dante, you know, it's like, it really becomes the center of her life. I mean, she did write some poetry that was religious um, for sure. Uh, she has mentions of, of Christian things and just mm -hmm. Christian, few Christian characters in her novels, but um, really from the mid mid thirties on is when we see more of faith becoming a central. <clears throat> Yeah. yeah. And then for just kind of peeling the onion back on this book, the, the man born to be King, you share some really interesting historical background in the introduction of the book and then peppered throughout the, throughout the play when your annotations and then some of Sayer's own words too. So maybe um, before Peter jumps in uh, for some uh, other questions, could we explain a little bit more about this particular book, the man born to be King? Yeah, sure. So um, these plays have been in and out of, of print ever since. Mm -hmm. um, 1943 was the first publication, um, just the year after the plays were, were broadcast. Um, and they've been well-loved. Um, even today, they're actually studied often in classical schools um, and, in, and homeschoolers love them. Um, and so they're, you know, this, but it felt like this was a great time to do this kind of annotated version. Um, so I partnered with the Wade Center at Wheaton College. Um, the Marion E. Wade Center um, specializes in the works of seven authors. So the four Inklings mm -hmm. and then Dorothy L. Sayers, G.K. Chesterton and um, George MacDonald. So um, so they they were very excited about this because, of course, most of what I'm annotating is stuff that I found in their archives. Mm -hmm. So um, so what I did, so we had the whole text of the plays, but then I looked at, um, you know, all of the uh, different letters mm -hmm. relating to the plays. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of letters relating to these plays uh, during their creation that she says uh, writes back and forth with her friends, but also with her producers at the BBC. Um, and then also, um, you know, different revisions, her own original handwritten manuscript of the plays. Mm -hmm. And I looked at how, you know, you looked at each version and sometimes there's just very interesting little things like, oh, she really struggled with how to write this line or how to express this thing. And she rewrote it. And sometimes there's like her handwriting. She crossed it out and wrote another word and crossed it out and wrote another word. And so I can sneak some of those things in here. Like she really struggled with this. And, and some of her other options were you know, for this phrase, which is interesting. And then um, some of the other really interesting bits are uh, people when they were listening to the plays would write her and sometimes would object to things. Mm. So a, a person will write and be like, how can you keep saying that Jesus has a golden beard? Everyone knows, surely he had black hair. Uh -huh. um, and so, and you know, and I read that the first time and I thought, oh, Dorothy, what are you doing? Jesus didn't have <laughs> golden hair. <laughs> yeah. but, to hear her response saying, well, I'm thinking about how he's portrayed in art a lot. I'm just kind of working with the picture that people have perhaps uh, already, but you're right. He probably did have black hair, but I'm writing for radio and I just have to have, there has to be something about him that people pull him out from a crowd. And so um, it's easy for, for me to say, which one? Oh, the one with the golden beard. And it just helps the viewer connect to him. Um, but it's nice to know that she knew what she was doing. Hmm. Um, or for instance, she combines the characters of Mary Magdalene That's and right, Mary yeah. Bethany, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a big thing. And, and um, something that, for instance, in my very first paper that I wrote at Regent, I really objected to, because I was like, everybody <laughs> knows there are different people. But what I didn't know is that really it wasn't until the 60s that biblical scholars really brought it into the mainstream to say these probably are different people. Uh, so there is a very long tradition of those two Marys. Oh, being yeah. Treated Huge tradition. Yep. Person. Yep. Um, we call it the composite Mary tradition. Yep. Um, and so just, you know, so people sometimes object to that. So she wrote, well, you know what? I'd rather be like Augustine. He <laughs> says they're the same people. So I'll stick with yeah. Augustine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, it's like she knows what she's doing. She knows that there were rumblings in scholarship of people that really wanted to, you know, make those clear that those were distinct women. Um, but, you know, she knew what she was doing. So being able to show those things in the sidebar um, are really fascinating, I think. And um, 
there's plenty of little wartime little nuggets in there too or mm -hmm. she'll say something like uh you know the crowd before pilot they're they're shouting like mm -hmm. like the nazis at a rally yeah you think whoa it just jumps out at you or something yeah because really that that was the time that she was writing so it would have been visceral in people's in minds yeah right so um it's just it's a just a great um opportunity to really explain that i mean i think we're getting far enough away it's 80 years since the first publication now um we're getting further away um from particularly some of the british isms yeah <laughs> that maybe Americans at the time might have caught, but aren't yeah. really catching today. The one that I kept on running into was the Batman. And I was like, what on <laughs> earth is a Batman? And then yeah. you have to keep on explaining it. I kept I kept on forgetting it. <laughs> right. That's the thing. So a Batman is a military servant. Yeah. So that's um who Jesus heals instead of the centurion's servant. He's, he he's not the ruler Batman. of Gotham. Yeah. Right. You know, um, but that's just you know just to make them keep making them accessible to people it's it's really a pleasure to kind of un unlock those um and hopefully just to to let people just dig as deep as they as they can in there and uh, to not be slowed down if they really want to know which gospel this thing is from they can look at the footnotes mm -hmm. and say ah, mark or whatever so. yeah she's a very creative writer and nothing yeah. was haphazard on her end. oh no that's right yeah and that that so that brings me so you're you're description of this brings me to the to this next question and it was I, i'd heard it before so um one of the professors at westminster made a big deal out of the dogma is the drama and i didn't like i didn't have a context for that and i was uh -huh. like okay yeah that i guess that makes sense then i read dorothy sayers like in her introduction to this play talk about some of the stuff and you already brought it up um mm -hmm. that i mean like if you can't make a good play through your theology your thought your theology isn't good enough and so maybe if you can you can talk through what about theology for Sayers was so dramatic uh, and why should it be the same for us when reading this and we're kind of thinking about our own theology like is this maybe in a sense it's not all the only question you should ask but is my theology good enough to write a play about it and be interesting oh I love that I love that um yeah I mean that's that's really what what got her going um there's a there's a later essay that she wrote for a magazine um, in the early 50s where she she talks about like I would rather have um, a a good play, um, you know, but like uh, the, just like the form of the play yeah. is is so important and how a lot of religious plays are kind of weak on content. They're kind of weak on theology because they're trying to like I don't know make people just feel like see Jesus is a good guy or something <laughs> yeah. but yeah but the like you know she that she that she sort of contrasted like would I rather have like a bad play with good theology that the or that that sort of milk toast or would I rather have actually a a, a good a well-written drama that um has bad theology like both these things are are not satisfying um but often you know like the the um the success you know you might say in for for a play might be you might because it's good drama and people mm -hmm. recognize it's good drama even if it's bad theology but what mm -hmm. she says what you need to have if it's going to be a religious play is that it's got to have the strong bony structure of good theology mm -hmm. um to hold it together and good drama both mm -hmm. of those things have to be yeah why can't we there. have both at the same time right yeah, and that's what, especially in her her introduction to the plays, um, she spends a lot of time on that. That both of those things have to be there, or it's gonna fall apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it was good not to have like kind of the story behind this. I, I Dr. Horton quotes it in just about every book he he writes, and he's written a bunch of books, um, and he's big into this stuff. And so when he was writing on this. Um, <laughs> that yeah the dogma is a drama yeah there we go so that's that's when he was talking about this like i like i knew he was right but it was it wasn't until i, I read this play i was like i i see what he's saying and i see what what dorothy is saying and so just like you said too and she 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 herself admits and obviously her critics let her know a lot um that she takes quite a bit of 
you can call it theological license. So she kind of plays with scenes here, there. She'll kind of mash scenes together here and there. Or she'll um, talk about the crowd or some conversation that Jesus might have had with the disciple. We're like, well, that's not in the Bible. And she's like, of mm. course it's on the Bible. I'm, I'm making a good play. Um, and yet, <laughs> yet it plays so well. And I was, as I, I listened to some of the chapters and I read some of the chapters and it's just so stinking compelling all the way through. And she's not splitting, always quoting scripture directly, although she does quote it directly sometimes uh, mm. through the mouths of biblical characters, or like the evangelist said this, or like Pilate will say something, or Jesus will say something, or whoever it may be. Um, so what is she doing? Because she's doing something with extra biblical dialogue. She's not just like kind of throwing it into the throw it in there, be kind of contrarian, right. but she's doing something with it. What is she doing with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, so I would love, cause you said theological license. I'd love to say dramatic license. There we go. That's better. Cause I, cause I would say she's working really hard That's to true. keep the true. hypostatic union together, mm-hmm. his divinity mm-hmm. and his humanity, both to be equally present in her character of Jesus. Um, but you're right. I mean, she gives background. I mean, she uses actually a bunch of Josephus in the first play yeah. in order to um, give a kind of historical background of who is Herod, um, and, and the, the, um, situation where there were a group of, of zealots at the time that stole the eagle off of mm-hmm. the temple. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that story in the Bible, but it's in Josephus and it was mm-hmm. part of the reign of Herod. And so she uses that as the backdrop for Herod being so angry that he sends, um, the troops to Bethlehem to kill all the boys to and yep. under. Yep. Um, yep. so she's, she, she really wants people to understand that this is something that really happened. Um, She has a wonderful essay called A Vote of Thanks to Cyrus. Um, And she Mm -hmm. talks about how when she realized that the Cyrus that she had read about in some of her classes in in a history book Mm -hmm. was the same Cyrus. In the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, She was like, this is like a real thing. Like this, the Bible (laughs) isn't just a story. It's actually historically grounded and we we can find in history these people so when she really wants people to know Herod is not just you know this this meanie who who's just you know this character this kind of uh one-dimensional character um who's simply angry and wanting to kill Jesus but that like he had a reason like things were really in turmoil and he might have lost his kingdom and he might have lost his head and if you know if he didn't look out for his own interests um, no one else was was going to. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. we may not like, of course, you know, think that of course he made the wrong choice yeah. because Jesus is God yep. and the Messiah. Um, and but from his own point of view, it makes sense. So she wants people to think about him that way. And she does the same with um, you know, we haven't with Judas too. With Judas, of course, she has yeah. a very nuanced view. I, of I Judas. loved how she did that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you, yeah. you quibble with how she interpreted it, but I, I, like the way she did it, humanized yeah. him. Where he's not—he's not just like the devil from the beginning. He's like he's—he's he's a human. Hmm. Right. That had his own reasons for doing things. She makes him a kind of intellectual who really yep. just trusts his own way of thinking yeah. rather than Jesus. And so he begins to doubt what Jesus is doing, doubting mm. Jesus's motives. Maybe he's secretly scheming to, mm. you know, make a military campaign. He seems yeah. to be talking to these other people, you know, um, some of these zealots who are wanting to kind of promote his cause. and Which is probably Jesus. not far off of what actually happened too. She's, she's reading the stories well. Right. Yeah. I mean, the zealots, that's another interesting thing because yeah. we, you know, the, the, the gospels mention the zealots, but they don't tell us what the zealots actually believed no, or did. Yeah. And so Sayers gives us some of that background, um, by creating a couple characters that are zealots that aren't part of the disciples who are interacting with them. Yeah. Um, kind of like worldly wisdom reacting to Christ and yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and even, I think that's, uh, the zealots are an interesting part because um, Baruch, who's the name mm-hmm. of the zealot, mm-hmm. main zealot character, um, he has this speech, which, I mean, she's thinking <laughs> so much about yeah. um, Hitler as yeah. she's writing this, because he says, like, all we need is a figurehead, yep. and people will march behind him, you know, and the party will just, you know, take control and has this whole thing. Um, we just need, you know, a spellbinder. Um, and so you can tell that certainly her first audience were really thinking like, wow, that's, that's what's happening in Germany. Um, 
And so making, but she's doing that kind of on purpose to help people be like this, no, this is a real thing. This, this kind of thing even happens today. Um, even though she's not saying the word Nazi during the, the thing, but she's yeah. using. They're in the environment where these things are happening. So people, people know what she's doing. She's alluding to something. They don't have to know exactly what that is. She doesn't spell it out, but they know. Right. But that's what she wants people to, to really feel that Jesus was a real person mm-hmm. who lived with real people who yep. reacted to him in their own way um, and had their own motives. Um, you know, they weren't, she uses in her introduction, she talks about stained glass window mm-hmm. characters. Like she doesn't want her characters to be like, we're just standing here allowing <laughs> Jesus to do his thing. Like we know mm-hmm. all about him. Like, no, mm-hmm. they didn't. Yeah, you can't um, impute they knowledge were, in the characters because they don't have it. Right. Exactly. So she wants them to be real living people. And Part of way she does that is with accents. She mm-hmm. she gives her characters a variety of English <laughs> that was accents. Hilarious, yeah. Reading some of those character studies. Yeah, um, Matthew. She makes a, a kind of Cockney, um, East London kind of guy, um, and which is funny. So so his his accent comes out in the way she writes it because he drops his H's, for instance. Mm-hmm. Some of the others you can't really tell, but. Um, but she gives a number of the disciples sort of from Galilee, Northern accents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she says that uh, Jesus and the Virgin Mary should both have like slight Irish tinges <laughs> to their accents, which is interesting. <laughs> um, so just the idea that like, these are real people, you know, yeah. um, and a lot of the listeners, of course, a lot of the, you think a lot of the children were, were out of London, sent out you know, all over the country for safety on farms and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people were out in country places. And so having characters that were country people um, meant a lot to people too. Yeah. And so that, and the the humanness, I think like, well, um, how do I say it? Like well done is, is both like a kind of a corrective because it's, it's the same thing in like kind of broader evangelicalism today you kind of forget Jesus was a human of course he was fully divine and fully man but we tend to drop the fully man and we look at the fully God and she she does such a good job of grounding him as a, as a real human being while not forgetting that he's obviously fully fully God because that for me that jumped off the page as well um, yes. and, and and even it was it was interesting too seeing how her critics reacted to that um mm-hmm. to how human jesus was and how gory some of the scenes were so maybe if you can talk a little right. bit like just how human he comes across and how that comes across in the play and maybe a little bit to how that was received by some of her audience um, who started writing her letters off of that yes yeah i mean i think that the biggest um pushback to that was actually even before the plays were yep. even aired because of um they they had a press release where she read some of the dialogue and so people Mm-hmm. I mean, there was like this huge letter writing campaign of these, these, you know, dear, well-meaning conservative mm-hmm. Christians from the Lord's Day Observance Society got hundreds of people to write letters, thousands probably, um, just to protest. And like, this is, you know, this is sacrilegious. This mm-hmm. is, you know, like they're speaking words that aren't even from the King James, given to us <laughs> by God. Yeah. Um and it's like, well, there's a little uh, nuance that, uh, but what we which mean. is funny because Sayers reads Greek and so she can still like translate some of the Greek while looking at some of the other translations too. It's like, no, she's actually reading what was written. Yeah, yeah, but but people really pushed back on that. I think totally there there had been the austerity um, of the language too. I think they thought it was kind of like dropped down a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think particularly James Welch agreed to have a more colloquial kind of dialogue. Uh, so he was the head of the religious yeah. uh, uh, broadcasting, the BBC, um, because he was really aiming at the unchurched. Mm. Um, and so he, they weren't, I mean, they had to deal with it when there was this big protest, but, but their real audience was the unchurched. Mm. And so he felt like, no, like they yeah. need to talk like everyday people. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's all um, you know, King James English, then they're not um, going to understand. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, so that's helpful. Maybe too, with, with maybe how Jesus is described, because you, you talk about, she's a creedal Christian, she's a confessional Christian. So, um, and I think it's helpful too. How does, how does she, how does she, um, really bring out his humanness 
while not neglecting his divine mission. Because she also talks about in her introduction, it kind of comes through where like kind of his divine consciousness, like his like knowing like I am God on mission. Maybe this sounds terrible to people, like doesn't come immediately to him. He's like, he kind of realizes this as he's coming through uh, his divine mission. Not that he doesn't know he's God, but he's like, he's realizing his mission throughout this, that he's fully human. So if you can talk like, how does, not how does she balance, but how does she really bring out his humanness while not, leaving off his divine nature. Yeah. Um, I mean, from the very beginning, she she said like, he has to be able to say words that aren't actually in the Bible. Like he has to be able to say good morning. Yeah. And you know, she gets way beyond that, but that's one of her first letters as she's explaining what she wants to do. Um, I think if if you if we look at just the the very first instance of where we actually hear him speak, in um in the second place in the first place mm -hmm. in a tip, you know it's an epiphany place where he's a baby so speaking it. Yeah. right yeah um so a few baby sounds but that's it yeah. um but in the second one just after we first hear him speak after he's just coming from being baptized by john um and he runs into someone who is a childhood neighbor and um and so i mean it's a very thing where she says jesus you know uh, do you remember me and he's like oh hannah of course and mm -hmm. um, and it's so it's a very human kind of thing. But if we look at the the letter that James Welch wrote to Sayers and said we were shocked, there's this theophany, and we imagine that Jesus is going to be like, oh, <laughs> you know, and like I'm going off yeah. into the desert. Um, but no, yeah. but you've made him so human. Yeah. And like he even kind of makes a little joke with the with one of the little kids who's standing there. Um, because the kid is the only one that that actually thinks that the voice that they heard was like yeah. the voice of God. Yep, yep, yep. Um, talking to him. She says that throughout the place too. Like he kind of sounds like God. Like he's got this uh, like weird voice that like kind of reminds me of God. <laughs> so, you know, it's just this very human interaction like that. Or um things like uh you know, he he'll make little jokes like mm -hmm. when there's the storm on the Sea of Galilee and he's walking on the water to them and they're terrified and they think that he's a ghost, but he comes up to the boat and he says, like, is there room for me in here? You know, like makes a little joke, which they <laughs> all puts them all yeah. kind of at ease that they all were like absolutely freaked out that they they think that that this is a ghost uh, walking toward them on the water. Um, but but he makes this very human kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. which again, you know, we don't have him saying those words in the scripture, but it'd be very reasonable, you know, mm -hmm. and it's not, um, she's not putting something in his mouth that is irreverent or something, but, but she is certainly yep. making him, um, human. Um, and, you know, of course it's radio. So it's like, it's just what they're hearing. So she can't even have him like smile. Mm -hmm, Cause they're not going to hear smile, smile with yeah. words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he'll like give a little chuckle or he'll, you know, like these very human things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very intentional, yeah. but even there with that, like on the sea of Galilee thing, um, you know, he, he's just calling the storm. So this, his, his divineness yeah, is very much straight through. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then this little human joke as yeah. he's getting into the boat that they're together. Yeah. So she's yeah. not, she's not adding by all means she's not adding things that he said that would be heretical she's just adding things yeah. knowing that not knowing that uh not everything that christ ever said in his human life is automatically recorded in scripture he was a human being that lived mm -hmm. 33 years you know they, there's not every single word he ever said is like in scripture so it's reasonable to say mm -hmm. he had other common things sayings he was a re yeah, regular old nazarene yeah. born in galilee he's like that's good. saying that's, good morning and yeah. in in the way they Which say good morning i, loved, like I said. loved how that was done by sayers in this play i loved how you kind of pulled all this stuff together because it like you really do hear the human and it reminded me i was looking up the quote i couldn't remember who said it but it was saint gregory i don't remember which one um, but that which is not assumed is not healed. And so I think she's really bringing this out. Like she's bringing out his human nature because he's not fully human. He doesn't save fully human people. Right. That's right. He had, he had to become human to save humanity. Yeah. And so I think what she does a good job of, uh, of bringing out the humanness. Cause if not, then 
what good is kind of this far off God for us if he's not really actually human? Right. Yeah. yeah. He only appeared to be human. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah. So there was uh, out of this 12 <clears throat> plays, do you have a favorite? And what do you think? What does your gut tell you on um, the people will be most gravitate towards their favorite one? They're the ones that they'll grab probably the most. Yeah, I oh, I have a couple favorites. I think that the two that come immediately to mind are play five, mm -hmm. where she does a great job showing what it was like for the um, the disciples to actually be involved in Jesus's ministry hmm. um, after he has given them the ability to to heal and to teach and has sent them out. Um, it's really, I mean, it's just amazing. And, and the way she kind of has this sense of like this whole crowd of people really pressing in on them. And, and then Jesus saying, let us, you know, let's go away for a while, um, to pray. Like you need, you need rest. But then of course the crowd follows them and there's the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and then play five also has the walking on the Peter walking on the water and the storm on the sea of Galilee. And then John six with the dispute with the, with the Jews over mm -hmm. um, his teachings about his, his flesh, um, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Um, so, and, and so how the crowd reacts. So that's just a really, I love that. Cause you really get a sense of like what it would be like to be a person in the crowd. Mm -hmm. um, I also really love play 12, the mm -hmm. resurrection play. Mm -hmm. um, this, the scene with the women on their way mm -hmm. to the tomb mm -hmm. is really beautiful. So good. Yeah. That was the um, only one I listened to. And I, ooh, I loved, okay. I loved listening to it. Yeah. I mean, we should, we should say that this is the other great thing about right now is that the the Sayers Estate and the BBC have re-released the uh -huh. audio versions of the plays on Audible, mm -hmm. so you can huh. get them on Audible or um, on Amazon. What you can and, do is you can listen to it and you can read your book at the same time. That's right. That's right. And of course, then you will see all the spots that they make little cuts. There you go. Like, yeah. Oh, this speech is too long. It's too theological. Surely they're not. You know. <laughs> so then they yeah. Cut it, and you're like, pause. I yep. don't actually hear what she says. There you go. Yeah, I like so, this. Yeah. Yeah. So, who do you, what do you think uh, the audience would be most gravitate towards? Do you think they'll like those same three that you picked, or do you think that there might be a, a hidden gem? Hopefully, there's hopefully there's someone that that favors each one of the twelve. I would. <laughs> um, I hope so. I mean, I certainly have favorite scenes, or just yeah. certain yeah. phrases come back to me too. Um, that are, you know, have, have become part of, you know, my own thoughts, my own prayers, um, mm -hmm. because so much of it is of course based on scripture. So just her, her interesting way of putting things, mm -hmm. um, you know, and actually I would say that, uh, as I was doing my sort of four column thing, I found there were a number of times where the word that Sayers picked is actually the word that's used like in the NIV, for instance. Huh. I think there's an interesting study for somebody to do. I don't think it'll be me um, to research if the, the 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 people who worked on the NIV uh, were fans of the man born to be king. I think they, huh. there might be some connection. I you know there's it's it's uh it's not I don't think it's a wrong thing because the NIV I know so my to be honest my favorite translation is the NIV. I like the ESV, but I love the NIV because they do a really good job of taking what it meant back then and to translate it to what it meant today, which is exactly what they're trying to do for men to be king. Not saying other translations don't do that, but I think the NIV really does it well for a broad audience. So like you said, there might be something there, not for me to do, but for somebody else yeah. who's listening to do it. <laughs> the next scholar <clears throat> who's looking for a PhD topic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and so Last question before before we let you go, um, and, and this is a curious question. We kind of we talked about this before the before the recording, because um, there's there's been a few other kind of plays. And people know Lewis's kind of lectures on Christianity, mere Christianity, which comes around the same time. Well, guy made, oh. there's a very important connection, actually. Oh, okay, let's hear it. Because Sayers had um, she was asked to do a series of lectures on the Nicene Creed, called Christ in the Creeds. Um, and she was the first lay person, first woman to huh. be asked to speak on a theological topic on the BBC. And this was, it was just so well received that they were like, oh, we should have other lay people. Who else should we ask? Oh, C.S. Lewis, would you do something on like kind of basic Christianity, which became mere Christianity? Oh, huh. wow. So wow. 
It was. Uh, we have Sayers to thank for for Lewis's mere Christianity. We yeah. do. Huh. Yeah. And we have uh, Tolkien to thank for helping uh, introduce the gospel to C.S. Lewis. That's that's right. Yes. Yeah. There's so much interconnection here. That's yeah. it's crazy. I yeah. No. And Charles Williams. He that's, got Sayers right. into yep. writing religious plays. She also it was his book that she his book um, the right. figure yeah. of Beatrice yep. that introduced her to. Yep. Uh, Dante, so that there's a lot of yeah. great connections there. All, all these connections and all, all that to say, um, you would think, and we this is more thinking of a U.S. audience and people in Europe, like you said, they, they know her novels better, her uh, mystery novels better than I think an American audience does. <clears throat> but why do, you, why do you think her play maybe hasn't gotten as much publicity or popularity in the U.S. as it might have gotten in Europe? And because Lewis is kind of like a, like his, his popularity didn't kind of extend it, like increased um, from the time that he died until now. But it, it kind of seems like that's not the same case for Sayers. No, I think there has been a little bit of a, of a decrease, but there's, there's always these little yeah, ebbs and flows. Bumps. And, yeah. and so I think, I think we're due for a resurgence. Hopefully Absolutely. this book will be a part of it. And I'm so glad that the audio versions are available now. Um, it is, it is getting used a lot more in classical education. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like there there is getting to be more. Um, the class of education is booming as of the last probably five or ten years. So yeah, it might yeah. might see more. Yeah, for sure. And I think they they they're a great complement. Like some of her writings mm -hmm. with Lewis because they were they were doing similar kinds of things, and um, so I think they're they're great to be studied together. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, well, Dr. Ware, thank you so much for coming on. And, and before, before before you leave, yeah, it, where can people find you, your work? And um, yeah, if if you have a kind of a final thought for, for our, our listeners. Yeah, sure. So um, as I think you said you'll have a link in the show notes yep, to will. the IVP one mm -hmm. for the book, which will be great. Um, I can also uh, give you my own website, uh, yep. katherineware.com. Um, which uh, has some more, you can find more links to other things that I've written on Sayers. Um, I'm also a musician, so I have my music oh. on there and stuff. So I saw um, some of that. I haven't listened to it, but I'll, I'll have to listen to it. I saw some of it though. Yeah, I would say it's actually some connections to, to Sayers because I was writing the songs. Oh. These are all songs about women in the gospels. Oh. And um, so I was writing that as I was writing my, my PhD. So there's a couple songs that have some direct link to the oh. place. That's great. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you for, for coming on and thank you for writing this book and, or I guess editing this sure. book and um, kind of resurrecting for people who may not know who Dorothy Sayers is and Dorothy L. Sayers. Let me say that. Dorothy there we L. go. Sayers. Good. Um, so yeah, thanks for reintroducing her um, who should never have left their memories, but um, hopefully <laughs> her, uh, her uh, reputation will expand and, and hopefully this book will be a part of it. So yeah, thanks for coming on. Good. I hope so. Good. What a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a, a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and, and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you want to do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, this is the number one way, besides word of mouth, that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.